Hello and welcome back to A Texan Abroad. Uh, as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. The more feedback I get, the more we do it, the better I get. Um, my last podcast was me flying solo, talking about the events of the last week to 10 days, but we're here for a, a little bit of relief from that kind of topic and discussion, a little bit of levity, a little bit of travel, a little bit of food, uh, a little bit of the Soviet Union uh, flying at us now in the form of Bob. Bob is a fellow Texan. I, I don't know. Do you classify yourself as a Texan, Bob? I, so I've lived, uh, I'm 35. I lived 22 of my 35 years on this planet in Texas. So I, that qualifies me, I think. There you go. We need to get you a professional Texan shirt like the one I have. Um, yeah. So, uh, Bob, you have traveled to um, all of the former Soviet republics, right? Obviously not uh, when they were in the Soviet Union, but now since they've become their own independent countries, it's a fair impressive feat. I mean, I don't know many Russians who have traveled to even half of them, let alone all of them. Uh, before we get into kind of the traveling and what you saw and your favorites and maybe some of your dislikes, did the fascination with those countries and even with Russia, did it start before you came here or uh, did you move here and the fascination kind of grew? So in my case, I know uh, in your case, for instance, you traveled the world and then kind of ended up here. But um, in my case, no, it was definitely, it started out as a Russia fascination while I was in the U.S. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was super interested or obsessed in Russia when, from a young age or anything. It, I didn't start studying Russian until I was a junior in college. And that was kind of on a whim, basically. I basically was um, trying to decide between uh, Russian or Chinese my junior year, my third year, I wanted to start studying a new language. And I signed up for Chinese, actually, I registered for Chinese. But then I, uh-huh. I went to the first couple of classes. And I was like, yeah, this is like, <laughs> like, maybe it's not my cup of tea. And I had a friend who was, uh, I'd studied Spanish before, you know, in high school, middle school, a little bit of college. And uh, but I had a friend uh, who uh, had been taking Russian for a while. He basically said, why don't you uh, consider Russian if you don't like this Chinese thing? You know, first year Chinese uh, when you're 20, 21 is like a little intimidating. So he was like, why don't you try Russian? It's, it's still a hard language, but it's a little less intimidating maybe than Chinese. And uh, so and there was a good teacher. So that definitely helped. But, you know, part of the reason I was intrigued, I would say, is um, I was always interested in Russia. So I was a kind of science tech nerd and like even even if you're not like a tech person, so you're not into like rockets and space travel and all that, but even if you're just, (laughs) even if you're just an American, like, or a Westerner, like Russia kind of looms large in the imagination. Sure. Absolutely. In a way that few countries do, I'd say a few cultures do, uh, non-Western culture. So it's like, it's everywhere. You watch movies and like the villains are Russian or, or, you know, you you watch the news and like the villains are Russian, but, uh, Maybe it's not always villains, but, you know, it's like Russia is everywhere. And we've seen that, obviously, in pop culture and the news and media and everything in the last couple of years. But even before that, I'm talking the 90s and early 2000s, Russia was... <laughs> yeah, spies like us. Not, uh, I mean... Yeah, it wasn't quite <laughs> as, like, front and center as today, but it was still, like, this... You know, there was the legacy of the Cold War, the Soviet Union, and it was kind of like Russia's this place that's... Uh, you know, uh, like, different than us, but, like, important and... Uh, 
and they've done like really important things and they matter to the world right in a way that uh i don't want to like you know talk bad about other countries but it's like oh if you're interested in um uh for instance like iranian history persian history which we can talk about later about central asia it really said iran is fascinating culturally i went there last year really cool place but it's not in terms of modern world history it's not like a, a central you right. know uh, country ancient world history a figure of the last 100 years or, exactly. or some of the adva advancements and and confrontations and conflicts and other yeah. things that have been kind of a part of modern history. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And I like, uh, you know, if you take a, and I studied history and I'm fascinated by history. And one of the really interesting things I think not enough people understand is um, so Russia kind of occupies a unique space in world history. So the last like 500 years or so of global history, uh, you know, you can kind of chop it up or construct it however you want, but one of the overarching, maybe I would argue the, the major trend was kind of the rise of the West and Europe and modernization was usually called modernization, now globalization. So, you know, there's a reason why if you go to, you know, uh, even if you go to like, you know, uh, Central African Republic, they wear jeans and t-shirts, right? Like jeans are yeah. an American invention. Like, why do they wear jeans? Why don't they wear their traditional dress? Well, they wear that because like, uh, kind of the West took over the world and established certain institutions and cultural norms and material norms and et cetera. And uh, what's interesting is Russia's, Russia was the first non, so there was the West, there was Europe where they had competing powers and all this that goes back, you know, a long time. You could track it back to the Roman Empire. So, but Russia was the first country that was not in the West that looked at the West and was like, we want to be like the West. So they looked at it and they were yeah. like, because they were on the periphery so they were on the edge and they were like, yeah, we're not gonna be able to compete with these guys unless we kind of, we don't have to do everything they do. You know, there might be some aspects we don't want to copy, but in terms of military, in terms of technology, you know, that kind of stuff, they're like, we need to like do what they're doing. And they were the first country to like really uh, famously, Peter the Great was like, we're going to move the capital close to Europe. We're going to study their sailing techniques. He found a Navy. He's like, we're going to study how they organize their army. Like let's build cannons, set up factories, et cetera. So, and it was all, he made people shave off their beards because uh, they're like in the West, they don't do that stuff. So it, it, it went beyond like simple stuff. It was like real deep culture. Like we need to copy what the, the West is doing. And uh, Russia was the first country to do that. Basically every place in the world has done that now. So like sure. Russia's, Russia was the first case of that. So it's kind of an interesting case. And from the beginning, you know, it's kind of important that from the beginning, Russia has had a conflicted identity. Like they, kind of copied the west but they never were really comfortable that and to this day they're not comfortable which should tell us something that like all the countries you know the non-western countries in the world that have adopted some western institutions including say democracy freedom of the press etc there you know there's always going to be some conflict you can't there are different cultures and um it's not like you're not going to have some global harmonious western concept everyone's like democratic and like like a star trek kind of future a federation of state it's not like that like uh yeah. the countries that copied this stuff like russia from the beginning have not been super happy you know uh they've gotten some benefit well, in essence you're talking about adopting a culture that is from another country so you're talking about replacing what is i mean in, in this particular case russian or soviet or whatever with what is western right and that is in a sense 
even though you might be doing it because it, uh, it's the best thing to do, it's the best thing for your economy, for your people, for politics, whatever, in a way, it's killing off the thing that you knew. And so there is always that hesitation, like, if I do something different, then what happens to what was before? And so it's kind of an almost like an identity crisis, yeah, uh, in some kind of way, I think, yeah. with a lot of countries, yeah. I think this goes back to, you know, like Hegel and all that, where there's the thesis, antithesis, and then you get some synthesis. So the thing is, like, in Russia, you can look at, like, Japan's, Japan's the second classic example of a country that chose to westernize. But, like, the result you get is not western, really. You get – there's, like, a westernizing. There's a force within the country that's, like, we need to westernize. But then there are people and just kind of cultural forces that resist that. That's yeah. still, to this day, both in Russia and in Japan, for instance, they're like anti-Western cultural. Yeah, uh, I just read in. People. But you still I get this kind in, of hybrid, you know? So Yeah, yeah I just read in, uh, an article in Foreign Policy, and it was actually about the, I read it for, for work because it was about the English language in Japan. And it was, it's this kind of conflicting idea of, English holds like a very prestigious place, right? In Japan, if, if you speak English, if your kids speak English, it's a sign of prestige, a sign of wealth and other things. However, there's also this deep undercurrent of resentment of Westernization and kind of English taking over Japanese. And that's why, like, I guess last year there was a ranking and uh, Japan was like 52nd or 49th or something like that in the world in terms of English proficiency. And when you think about their connections to, to America and to Europe and to other places and the advancement of their economy and everything, you would think that it was a lot better. But apparently it is this kind of deep-rooted cultural um, difficulty to accept the English language because I guess kind of like what you're talking about, right? Which is the, the pushback of we should speak Japanese, this is Japan versus you know, English is the world's language, the language of business. We don't care, right? So it's this kind of conflicting thing that they have even linguistically. So yeah. I assume that's kind of the same thing on the cultural level. Yeah, it's so uh, getting back to Russia and like, um, you know, it's it's fascinating. Like the, the role Russia plays in Western history, it's like this foil. It's kind of Western and we judge uh, the West kind of against Russia and some of the greatest things to ever come out of the West came from Russia. So you think about literature, like Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, like basically invented the modern novel. You think about classical music, which classical music, when you have a very regimented uh, theoretical musical structure of how you, you compose music, but also the way uh, the instruments are constructed and then the way it's formed into a group of people playing instruments, right? It's a very Western concept of like how you, you know, building a violin and a cello, uh, you know, a bass and viola and then all the string and brass instruments and they're constructed in certain ways and then you compose music in certain ways. It all started in Europe, but then the Russians really mastered it and like it flourished in Russia, right? So um, it's, and you know, it's really fascinating that so much happened in Russia. And at the same time, like in the 20th century, Russia was like the biggest antagonist to the West. It was, you know, so sure. you know, it's like the, the other half of the cold war the one one half was the west and then the other half was the east you know which is the soviet union basically and the allied states so yeah it's like this um i don't know it's a fascinating place like uh like the famous churchill thing of the whatever it is riddle so, wrapped in a puzzle and an enigma kind of thing and uh it's yeah. like, i think for any western pro person russia is just if 
you're well read and you kind of understand history. Russia has this weird kind of, it's just a really interesting and intriguing uh, cultural place. Now, when you got, so the fascination was initially with Russia. When did that kind of expand to kind of the former Soviet republics, the Soviet Union? Was that when you were studying the language and kind of, I guess you got involved in the history as well, or did that happen when you came here and you took a trip to, you know, uh, Georgia or some other kind of place and you said, wow, it's like if you combine all of these very rich cultures that used to form it a single entity, it's even vaster, even more interesting. Did that start before or after you got here? It was definitely after. So for me, it was a, uh, some people approach it that way. Like the, it's uh, what we call Eurasian now. So, you know, in the, like in a lot of contexts, both journalism and in the academy, like uh, when people talk about Eurasia, they usually mean uh, this kind of broader understanding of the, you know, the area between Europe and Asia, but that basically means Russia, like greater Russia, including Central Asia, Caucasus and stuff. So uh, for me, it definitely, some people approach it from the Eurasian angle, right? I definitely approach it from the Russia angle. So I didn't know anything about any of the uh, other Soviet republics, for instance. Uh, I came to Russia, I studied here, I studied abroad, and uh, I found it really fascinating. But I really did not know even the basics about any of the other uh, republics were, you know, which were independent countries. Uh, uh, I came here the first time like 15 years ago, but um, yeah, it definitely started as Russia. And then I just kind of randomly, some friends invited me. I went to Belarus in 2006 and uh, Belarus, you know, is kind of the closest country to Russia in terms of on the ground, what it feels like, I'd say, mm-hmm. uh, of all the, you know, 15 republics, like it's the closest to Russia by far. Uh, and then the next one I went to in 2007, I went to Ukraine. And Ukraine, of course, uh, you know, it's a, it's a complicated subject. It's kind of a spectrum from west to east, um, right? The, the further west you go, kind of the more different it feels. And But yeah. I, I went into western Ukraine on the land border, so I, cro- I walked across the border from Poland and and then took a, you know, a marshrutka, like mini taxi to uh, to Lviv and uh, and that really I was like wow it's kind of like Russia you know they have this real alphabet but it feels really different yeah. so uh, that yeah. was maybe where it started uh, kind of the interest in uh, broader Eurasia and then later on you know I went to Central Asia and Caucasus and stuff which are actually I'd say way more rich and interesting than uh, the other Slavic states like Belarus and Ukraine but uh, yeah so it kind of that's you, how it started so there's 15 of them yeah 15. Yes, that's right. Right, we could count uh, if you want. So it's Russia. <laughs> I, I, I think I told you I grouped them in four groups, right? So it's Russia, Belarus, Ukraine are the Slavic ones, the core Slav uh, parts of the Soviet Union. So that's three. There's the three Baltics: so Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Uh, mm-hmm. There's um, Moldova is kind of the weird one on the south. So it's actually ethnically yeah. Romanian, but it's you know, so it's not Slavic, but um, it's kind of. It's its own thing, I guess. And then there's the uh, Caucasus. Uh, so wait, that's what do we got. We already got seven. We got right? three, four, yeah. five, six, seven. Yeah, seven. So then um, there's the Caucasus, which is uh, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. Uh, unless you count South Ossetia and Abkhazia, but I wouldn't count them. <laughs> Certainly in the Soviet Union, they weren't separate. So that's three more. So that's ten. 
Then there's um, Azer. Oh, there's Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is the weird one. It's kind of Caucasus and it's kind of Central Asia. So keep that in mind. It like kind of splits the two. And then there's uh, so that's eleven, right? And then there's yeah. uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan uh, in Central Asia. So yeah, yeah so that's fifteen. Yeah. 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 So having visited all of them, you said that you just said that kind of the more Asian ones were more interesting or were rich. What is uh, of the 15, and maybe you take out Russia because, you know, you live here, maybe you've traveled a decent amount in Russia, but of the other places, is there one that stuck out as uh, particularly great, interesting, rich in terms of like a, a travel destination, right? In terms of actually going and visiting there and seeing what it's like on the ground. Um, and is there one that maybe is, leaves something to be desired with a little bit of a letdown? So maybe yeah. like a, a top one or two and then a bottom one or two in terms of your experiences in those places. So I might, I might disappoint you a little in that um, <laughs> I don't think there's a top, you know, as usual, life's complicated. We don't want to, you know, insult anyone. Yeah. And uh, there's not a top one or two and a bottom one or two. I mean, there is if you, if you say like, these are my requirements, one, two, three, I want to see this, right? Then right. I would say this is the best and that's the worst. But it really just depends on what you want to see. Depends on what you want to see. Yeah, and and that and I'm not just like uh, bullshitting you here. That's like uh, it's like quite, it's definitely like that because um, so good good example. If you just look at Central Asia, Central Asia is like really fascinating region because historically, um, so you know, like we talked about already, there's this concept of Eurasia, which actually goes back hundreds of years, but um, you know. Uh, there's a, like Europe as a cultural, uh, like cohesive body, right? It's a, it's a self kind of like developed idea that there is this thing called Europe and like, um, anyways, for a long time in history, if you look at ancient history, there was no idea of Europe, right? Like it was like the Greeks did their thing and like then the Romans did their thing. The Persians were doing their thing. And anyways, Central Asia was the, the region between, um, you know, there are different great civilizations of the world that grew up when agriculture started. One of them was China, and one of them was like uh, the Near East, what we now call Near East. So like Anatolia, Sumeria, you know, what's now Iraq and those areas, kind of extending a little bit into what's modern Europe with Greece and stuff, but not very far, actually. Uh, the, like most of Europe was not important historically, you know, for most of history, actually. But uh, so Central Asia is interesting because it was always this conduit uh like channeling religion so if you look at like the spread of christianity then spread of islam much later but if you go back in time the spread of buddhism and uh, so for instance like they found statues in um statues of the buddha because there's this whole stat statue tradition of the buddha right so, uh, of this like fat smiling jovial buddha we know but a lot of that early statue tradition apparently came from the greeks because these uh there were greek statues that were traded into central Asia or through Central Asia into Asia because uh, uh, the Greeks had a very developed statue tradition we know like they're amazing artists and there was like a real spread of like design ideas so if you if you talk to like the ancient historians who like look at arts they're like yes there was major Greek influence on why there are these statuesque visual representations of the Buddha right because other religions like mm -hmm. Islam in Islam there's no visual representation of Allah right that's why mosques are like geometric you know they don't have paintings they don't have statues so Anyways, Central Asia was like this crossroads, uh, like 
probably the biggest crossroads in all of like human history. And uh, it's like uh, a really cool area. And there were cities there, but if you, I mean, if you look at kind of the last couple thousand years, the cities were Persian. Uh, they were like, you know, I don't want to get into too much detail, but they were influenced from Iran and Persian. But then there were these nomadic peoples, the like Turks and nomads who, uh, Turkic peoples, not Turks, but Turkic peoples, uh, the Kazakhs, the Kyrgyz, what we now call, and they were different tribes and that kind of thing. But uh, they coexisted. So they're always like these settled peoples, the Persian Iranian peoples, including Tajiks. So Tajiks are Persian. It's important to understand. Mm -hmm. The other Central Asian ethnic groups tend to be Turkic. So the Uzbeks, the Kyrgyz, uh, Turkmen are Turkic, but the Tajiks are Persian. And they were the settled people who, like did agriculture and grew like, you know, uh, grapes, they did wine, they did melons, all this kind of stuff. And uh, so this is like a really roundabout answer, but it's like, if you're interested in, I want to go and see ancient cities with like buildings and stuff, right? Then mm -hmm. you need to go to the places where the cities were built. And that's like Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan is the one I would recommend, right? Because if you go, if you're like, what's, what is there to see? So if, if you told me, I want to see cities, like important, interesting, historic cities in Central Asia, I'd tell you, go to Uzbekistan, uh, maybe a little bit Turkmenistan, you know, but um, if you told me I want to see beautiful nature, I would tell you, go to Kyrgyzstan because Kyrgyzstan doesn't have historic cities because they were nomadic people. They didn't build buildings, right? They moved around mm -hmm. as the livestock were moving. Uh, but it has probably the most, some of the most beautiful natural scenery in the world. Uh, like, I mean, the, the mountains in Kyrgyzstan are ridiculous. Like they're like 25,000 foot mountains, you know, like really like even North America, we don't have anything like that. The Rockies have nothing on Kyrgyzstan. So, uh, you know, there's definitely stuff to see. Uh, like Kyrgyzstan is the most impressive nature in the former Soviet Union, but it doesn't have like cities. If you're interested in learning about history and seeing cities, there's really, it doesn't have a ton to offer. I'd say. Was there, so there's not a best or a worst. It's more, uh, as you said, kind of about taste. Is there a place that surprised you with how much you enjoyed it, right? Like you might've gone there with tempered expectations uh, or not sure what you were going to find. And you found it, it's, obviously you have your own kind of interest in the things that you like when you travel and that are interesting to you that you want to see, but just something that maybe stood out in terms of kind of like a hidden gem that probably a lot of people just generally in Europe or back in the, back in the States haven't heard of, wouldn't think about in terms of traveling. It's one of the things that I've always liked about living abroad anyway, is that you end up traveling to places you wouldn't fly across the world to see normally. Is yeah. there any kind of hidden gem uh, that you came across? So I would again say, um, you know, I, I'll give two answers, basically. Uh, this is a kind of cop out. I don't, I can't decide, <laughs> basically. But let me just say some of the, like, because multiple places have surprised me pleasantly. I'll put it that way. And uh, Central Asia is definitely one of them. So, uh, like, in terms of natural beauty, it, if you just Google, like, Kyrgyzstan scenery or Kyrgyzstan, like, natural beauty, just Google that phrase. And it is absurd. Like, uh, these, they have some mountain lakes, you know, Isikul. Yeah. Uh, so cool and like they are you know the i don't think there's really anything elsewhere on the planet yeah it's really uh stunning and unique you know uh the other thing i'd say so um uzbekistan i would also 
I think, and you can combine those two. So um, I would definitely um, advocate for Uzbekistan. This go. But the other, the other um, region, and this won't surprise you, I'm sure, is uh, the Caucasus. So uh, a lot of people know Georgia, and I am also an advocate for Georgia. I think Georgia's, you know, it's got everything, right? Some, some countries have, like, certain interesting things. Like I said, Kyrgyzstan's got nature, and that's cool. But Georgia's one of those countries, and there's not a lot of them in the world. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Italy or France. It's got everything, right? You want mountains? You got mountains. You want cuisine? Like their own national, distinct cuisine? They got cuisine. Oh, you want wine? They have like the oldest wine making tradition in the world. Like oldest archaeological remains of winemaking come from Georgia, not yeah. from Europe. You know, they have the oldest pots with residue from grapes. Uh, you want like, you know, interesting uh, artifacts. Uh, they have that. They have their own language. They have their own alphabet. It's not used in any other country, just Georgia. So, Georgia's cool. Armenia is basically no less cool. Uh, Armenia, I would say I was pleasantly surprised because it also often gets overshadowed by Georgia, but Armenia actually has no less to offer. They have their own traditions, even though it's right next door to Georgia, it's not very big. Uh, they have very distinct uh, traditions, like, in, you know, including famously, they have these crosses and small churches. They, they were the first Christian nation. They were very proud of that. So they, it's the first government to officially adopt Christianity in the world you know, before. Mm -hmm. the and um, they have this ancient tradition of making uh, stone crosses and putting them on high peaks and stuff. Uh, I mean, they're big. They're not, you know, they're like man-sized kind of crosses, like uh, several hundred pounds, I'm sure 500 pounds. Uh, so like these big stone crosses they put on like in areas where you go to kind of appreciate the awe of nature right you go yeah. up to this like remote place and you're just in awe and you're like wow like let's put a cross there's here a cross up there yeah, yeah. And, and it's obvious why you do it right because it gives you an impression of like the uh huge scale and scope of nature and like god and everything so um yeah armenia is definitely one and then the the other one so we're talking about the caucasus in general the other one i mentioned is the north caucasus so the part of the caucasus that's in russia today mm -hmm. But even Russians were not considered uh, Russian land, Russian land. Like when I was there, I remember I took a taxi and uh, uh, I was in the Russian part of the Caucasus. So there is a, the west side towards Sochi is like Russian, predominantly Russian. And I, but I, I found a taxi driver to drive. Uh, I was with our friends, you know, uh, Mitch and Will, and we found just a guy on the street and it was like, hey, we need to go to um, Nalchik, which is the capital of Kabardino-Balkaria. Uh, which is a Muslim area, historically Circassian, actually really interesting uh, history to that. But uh, he was like, uh, we were like, can you take us there? It's not far. It's like an hour and a half drive or something. And he was like, yeah, okay, if you'll pay me, I'll take you. He was a Russian guy. And while we're in the taxi driving, we're an hour and a half, <laughs> so I'm just like chatting with him. And I was like, when was the last time you went there? He lives, so he lives in the Russian town. That's like an hour away. And he's like, mm, the 1990s. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, and he he referred to it as like he's like, well, uh, okay, we're coming up soon on the end of uh, Ruskaya Zemlya. So he's like, this is the end of Russian territory soon, and Russian soil, literally. So he's like, Russian soil is ending, and now we're going into the Republic, you know, this Caucasian Republic. So like, for the Russians that live there, it's very clear that that's not Russia, right? That's like uh, yeah. it's in the Russian Federation. Like it's within Russian Federation, but it's not Russia, you know, and they really like, that's literally how they refer to it. So, uh, yeah, 
but those Northern Caucasian Republics are actually really interesting. The history is really interesting. The people are really nice. The food is amazing. Again, they have rich Caucasian, all of the Caucasus has like a rich culinary tradition, but in North Caucasus, uh, for sure. And, uh, yeah, the history is just like absolutely fascinating. The different peoples there, um, the Assetians, for instance, just like, uh, yeah, I could talk like for an hour just on North and South Ossetia, but they're, they're the only, so in ancient Greek history, if you read like Herodotus and stuff, there are these, the Scythians who were like the, uh, we now know they spoke like an Iranic Persianate language, but they were a steppe people. So they, they didn't have cities. They kind of just migrated with the herds and everything again. And uh, the only remaining people that speak a language related to, if you look up, if you look up like Scythians map, ancient Greek, it's like all of what's now Russia and Ukraine were, were the Scythians. Mm. And the only people remaining from those groups that were like the dominant travel groups and all of what used to be like Southeastern Europe are the Ascetians who live in Ascetia in Russia and they're Christian. So the other ethnic groups around there are Muslim. The Ascetians are Christian and um, they're Iranic. They speak a, a Persian, like uh, Iranic language. I mean, it's not, if you're, from Iran, you can't understand what they're saying. You know, it's as different as like English and yeah. German. Like you can't understand. But uh, they're still like from that. So, anyways, there's a lot of rich history out there. So, in terms of what regions are, surprise you, you know, it's hard to give a single answer. But I think Central Asia, there's a lot of richness in there, uh, and uh, the Caucasus is like one of the kind of most impressive regions, like anywhere in the world, I would say, uh, in terms of history and like hospitality and the people. So. What you mentioned a couple of times, food is there. So we obviously Georgian food. I think actually I read an article in the New York Times about Georgian food recently. So I think that's actually kind of uh, picking up uh, around the world. Like people are starting to understand it and learn more about it. It's obviously one of our favorites here in, in Moscow that we like to eat. Um, are there other foods that you were, uh, again, that... Um, you enjoyed that you really liked. Um, I know what were the what are the salted cheese yeah balls? From, from Central Asia yeah and uh, so yeah they're they're so the thing I again I hate you know I don't hate but to bring it back to history but a lot of this comes back to history you know so you gotta like yeah, know yeah, your yeah. history no 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 when yeah. you were telling me about the 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 dried cheese it's because yeah they had to to take it with them when they were going on these long treks and they needed, uh, you know, essentially food that would last for a long time. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're nomadic people, um, you travel with the animals, right. And, uh, which for some nomads, it's just horses, right. You can survive like humans can survive with just horses. I'm talking, you eat horse meat, you drink horse milk. Uh, like you can do that as a culture and that's basically all you ever eat in the summer. You might get some berries or something once a year for a month or, but like essentially occasionally you hunt some stuff if you're like near the forest but you know eurasia like most of eurasia most of like southern russia and uh certainly kazakhstan kazakhstan is huge by the way it's like half the size of the united states or something it's ridiculous it's huge uh it's like the fifth sixth largest country in the planet and um all that area is steppe so it's like prairie you know low grass prairie and there's mm -hmm. no there are no, there's no, historically, you know, until modern times of irrigation, there was no um, agriculture, right? So the only food was like animals. And so the historic food you get from those kind of regions is like 
different kinds of fermented or soured milk because they had animals. So they have dairy and milk products. It's different kinds of grilled meats, you know, because you have meat. But there's not a, a large, a very rich tradition of, uh, you know, like if you go, like, you know, if you go to Georgia, for instance, there's like, okay, let's crush up some pomegranates, mix in these different five herbs and like, you know, it, but right. on the prairie, there's no herbs, you know, you got a horse no nothing. and it's like, yeah. let's make some stew. We got a horse and let's like kill the bush <laughs> of the horse and put it in a pot. And like, uh, that's what you have to work with, you know? So it's like your ingredient base is really limited. And that, Russian cuisine for the same reason, I think is very limited. I mean, they, it's rich for what you can do with the resources they have. But um, a lot of Russian cuisine is pickled and smoked, preserved sausages, pickled vegetables, you know, pickled pickles, pickled tomatoes, pickled uh, mushrooms, all that, pickled garlic, et cetera. And uh, that's because uh, you have this long winter and there, you know, it's a plentiful place in the summer, but eight months out of the year, you just, you know, there's not a rich, like uh, array of ingredients. You got to be real careful yeah. uh, with how you do this. So, um, yeah, so if you look back historically, uh, in Central Asia, so they're the steppe peoples, like I said, the Kazakhs, the Kyrgyz, and kind of the Turkic steppe peoples. It goes back thousands of years. And they were nomadic. They subsisted on meat and milk. And, yeah, they are, there's some interesting legacy, uh, you know, inheritance from that, like the quartz, these dried salted cheese balls where they try to preserve the milk because milk will spoil. You have no refrigerator. So if you have excess milk, you got to preserve it. But then – the Persianate areas, which were civilized, so there were cities, there were these majestic, huge cities in Central Asia. They did have a really rich culinary tradition, uh, which, you know, famous, the most famous dish, of course, is plov, or what we call pilaf yeah. in English often. It's the same dish. Uh, and uh, it's a mix of rice, so it's an agricultural product, uh, with uh, meats, so the meat influence from, uh, but uh, off, usually lamb. And... Um, and then, you know, a mix of vegetables and stuff you add. Sometimes you add, oh, you usually add carrots, but you, in the modern variation, but you can also add uh, raisins and uh, onions, potatoes, even sometimes, uh, and just a variety of different things. So uh, there's a rich culinary tradition in Central Asia. Coxus also has a very rich culinary tradition. Uh, and like we said, uh, wine is a big aspect of that. So Georgia, uh, not just Georgia, but Armenia too, and the, the Russian area, what's now a Russian area, North Caucasus had a winemaking tradition, like one of the oldest ones in the world, uh, in Crimea too. And, uh, and uh, then just like uh, also their own, you know, everything like from just like own national dishes uh, in terms of like meat dishes and dairy dishes, et cetera. So those are very rich, like Caucasus is a rich in terms of world cuisine, you know, uh, like yeah. you, could point, you could point to, like Mexico is my favorite example. It's a melting pot of uh, the new and the old world, you know, Colombian exchange. And you got some of each like influence in their cuisine and they mix it together. It, unfortunately, in the U.S., Native Americans were killed off, unlike in Central and South America, where most of the population to this day is, you know, Native American or partially Native American. Uh, but uh, so in the U.S., it was all European. But in, you know, uh, Central and South America, you, you got this weird mixing pot. And in Central Asia, there's a mixing pot, too, of the East-West and the nomads and the settled peoples. And uh, you had a real rich culinary tradition. And the Caucasus, too, had – it's also kind of East-West route. Uh, um, not directly – it wasn't directly on Silk Road, but it was kind of an offshoot. And uh, they had this, like, cool mixing pot of different uh, 
culinary traditions. So uh, I definitely think, I mean, you could spend, you could do, you could be very happy doing like a two week vacation of Georgia and Armenia, just going to vineyards and learning about also the local food production and like how they make certain things. Like good examples, Churchella, you've probably had mm -hmm. like the uh, nuts strung up on a string and then you, yeah. you pour the uh, residue after winemaking. It's like this gelatinous, uh, residue of the crushed grapes and stuff. You pour it. Oh, you, they add sugar, and then you pour it over the nuts on the string, and it kind of turns into like a gelatinous, chewy. Yeah, I don't even know what's called. Like candy, like fruit, it's like it's, fruit yeah. roll up. Yeah, it's not super sweet. Yeah. It's kind of sweet. It's kind of like a less sweet fruit roll up, but natural, made from grape residue yeah. with nuts inside, and it's just, it's delicious. It's like amazingly good. It's very good. Yeah, yeah. When we took a we took a car outside of Tbilisi. Uh, for a couple of days and yeah the guy who was driving us kind of uh, we stopped at a bunch of different like little stands where they made fresh bread one where they made the fresh trachilla and it was it's phenomenal man that stuff's really good yeah yeah so yeah I would I would uh, like I'm always amazed by um, these cultures that have you know, for me, when you go on a vacation, it's like you want to see a cool city. You want to see probably a beach, maybe some mountains. You want to have good food and good drink, you know. And there are a few countries in the world that like tick all of those five boxes, you know. Uh, Italy is a famous one. France is another one. Like I said, Iran is one. Like I told you, except for the drink because they're Islamic now. But historically, they were a major wine power. Like Shiraz, the wine comes from the t city of Shiraz in Iran. That's where it was originally made. So historically, they definitely ticked all the boxes. And then um, uh, Georgia is one. Like, you know, there, there's probably only like 10 countries in the world, I'd say, or something that ch check all those boxes, you know? There's not, e not even all that many European countries check all of them. So, um, yeah, in my opinion. Especially like, when you're talking about unique, unique alcohol or drink, unique food, right? It's not just good food or good drink, but something unique to that culture, to their history, to their tradition, as yeah. well as just having cities and, and other aspects of their cultural history that yeah. are interesting to explore. Yeah. yeah, and kind of and different. So, I mean, you, you know, you could go to uh, Germany and they have some cool stuff and Bavaria is cool. But then if you go to Austria, it's like Austria is different than Germany. Don't get me wrong, but it's not that different. You know, it's like um, or like Portugal is different than Spain, but it's probably not that different. But like Georgia and Armenia are like total polar opposites. Like they're the languages are not even close. Like it's not like Spanish, Portuguese. They're like totally different. You know, they're not, they don't have the same alphabet even. So it's like, um, and their food is pretty different too. So like, um, yeah. There are these did you get that, that? Did you get that with a lot of the places? Like, I mean, you grouped them when we started this, you kind of grouped them into four different groupings. Um, did you see cultural similarities? Like again, between, if you were talking about Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, or the Caucasus countries, or you know the uh, you know uh, Central Asian countries, did you notice similarities, or are they all pretty uniquely different? You know, so um, the uh, you know I would say the similarities are uh, each of those regions is different. Uh, there are similarities, though, for sure. Um, one of the things, and this kind of bridges into maybe one of the other topics you wanted to talk, but uh, talk about is um, the fact that they were all in the Soviet Union does create um, certain similarities. The, the biggest one is, you know, what uh, 
like historians call uh, material culture. So it's literally like if you were sitting in an apartment in Georgia, you know, if you brought a Russian person to an apartment, uh, say it's not Georgia, say it's any of those 15 and you ask them, which country are we in? They would not know. Right. It's like the, the apartment looks the same. The like, uh, literally the like floor pattern looks the same. The wallpaper looks the same. Mm. It looks the same. The, outlet, the electrical outlets look the same. It's like, you have no idea, right. Uh, where you are. So, uh, there's this like commonality of material culture and like the cars look the same, at least the old ones, the buses are all the same models, the, you know, uh, it's like because of the way, you know, it's just so you really oversaw the modernization of these places, the building of like modern cities, modern housing, schools and all that stuff. So a lot of those kind of modern elements uh, are really the same, which as a traveler kind of helps you because it's like, yeah, you go to these places and it's different, but it's also kind of the same. It's like you kind of know uh, it's like pretty easy to navigate. Like if you go to Metro in Kiev, the Metro cars look the same as in Moscow or in New yeah. York or whatever, you know? So um, it's a little different. It's like they use tokens in Kiev and they use a card in Moscow, but the it's like kind of the same. It looks the same. And um, it definitely like helps you that the material culture is the same. And then of course, like Russian and Soviet Union was the lingua franca. That's becoming less common um, in a lot of these areas. So I think, you know, in the next several decades, we're going to see that Russian won't, will already not be, uh, you know, as of now, if you speak Russian, you can easily travel in most of those places. And, but that's becoming less and less each year. So uh, there are more and more people who don't know Russian and they're not, you know, you know, it's a thorny political subject, but there are some people who know Russian, but maybe not don't want to speak it. Right. But then there are other people who literally just don't know Russian and like, they just don't know the language. And you're seeing more and more of those people like in Central Asia and in the East Europe and the former areas, uh, except Belarus, Belarus is still thoroughly Russianized. But, um, you know, in the Baltics, for instance, like if you go to Latvia has a big Russian population, but if you go to um, Lithuania or Estonia, there are still Russians there, but your average, you know, ethnic uh, Lithuanian who's born in Lithuania, grew up in Lithuania, who's now, you know, might even be 25, but was born up, born after the collapse of the Soviet Union, probably doesn't know Russian at all. So like, if you speak Russian, then there's like, what, what the hell are you saying? Of course, they're going to speak English because the Baltics mm-hmm. are, are Europe. But if you go to Central Asia, it's kind of sad because a lot of the um, younger generation have reverted from in previous generations, you know, at least in the 20th century, they were bilingual. They spoke their native language and then Russian, but now you've reverted to monolingualism where they not only do they not know Russian, they don't know English either. You know, they just don't know another language. So you can go to Kyrgyzstan. A lot of people only speak Kyrgyz, the young people like that. You can't communicate with them. There's a huge barrier. Uh, so I experienced that. Uh, not everyone, obviously, in the cities. If you go to Bishkek, a lot of people speak Russian. But um, if you go out to the regions, like, they don't speak Russian. You know, I try to rest in the Russian, and they're like, they might know a few words. Uh, but then you're like, oh, okay, well, then they'll know English. It's like, no, they don't, they don't know English either. <laughs> <laughs> no such luck. So. Are there are there other countries? When I When we were in Georgia, we met Georgians, like you just said, that, kind of new Russian, but um, preferred to speak, I preferred to speak English. Like if they knew English and Russian, probably Russian better than they knew English. But uh, talking about, you know, people in their 20s or so also had kind of the trilingualism, but preferred maybe for political reasons or whatever else, 
Did you get that other places where they would prefer not to speak the language? So the big ones, um, you know, uh, 20 years ago, you would have said the Baltics, but the Baltics are now thoroughly Europeanized. So I don't think they even really worry about it so much anymore. But the big ones I would say are, it, you know, like you said, it's kind of, it's the countries where there is a uh, widespread antagonism towards Russia, right? Cause they don't, they like political tension. Yes. And the, the big ones are Georgia and Ukraine. It's those two. And, uh, mm-hmm. and the point, the kind of interesting thing I would say is Ukraine, like prior to, I went there for the first time in 2007 and Ukraine is more, is closer to Russia than, um, you know, than any of the other republics except Belarus. So, <laughs> Uh, it's very yeah. close to Russia culture. So when, when the Russians talk about it as a, uh, like Ukraine and Russia are kind of are one culture, like they're, that's true. That's not, you know, it's not some made up uh, political stuff, whether or not that means they have to be buddies. You know, I mean, that's a different question, right? Like Canada, and the U S are kind of one culture, the U S and Britain were one culture at one point, And then there was a revolution, right. And there was a different country. So you can be part of one <laughs> culture, but like not the best buddies. You know, right. Right. Sure. So, uh, yeah. So uh, anyways, but uh, culturally, Ukraine and Russia are very close. And I think that given that the political winds are shifting uh, or have shifted to the other direction, maybe uh, that almost causes them to kind of overcompensate because like Georgia has their own culture. And like everything I said, they're like they have their own. It's like, you know, Georgia is actually a language isolate, basically like they don't they don't have any neighboring languages that are related to Georgian. They have their own alphabet, like I've said multiple times. And, but they, they do have Russian tourists. So they're very, and they have this Caucasian hospitality thing going on. So they they like Russians to come in, but they're very secure in their national identity. And they have been for thousands of years, right? The Georgian kingdom goes back to Roman times. You know, there was an independent Georgian kingdom that was allied, uh, you know, like way back when, like with the Greece and the Romans. And, uh, it, but it was independence or, you know, it might've been a kind of vassal state, but it, it was its own thing and it had its own thing going on. You know what I mean? Uh, Ukraine was not like that. It, it, they're having, to, they're trying to invent their own national identity where they didn't really have one or they kind of, there was some like national identity say has like five elements. They had like two or three, but they didn't have five. You know what I mean? They had some, yeah. it wasn't Russia, but it wasn't really not Russia either, you know? And uh, so now they're kind of overcompensating to try to like really, you know, uh, uh, like distinguish themselves. So I think like if you, of the 15 republics today, if you were just to go into one and speak like relatively fluent Russian, Ukraine is the one where people might be kind of like, you know, West Ukraine, it might be like, yeah, we prefer you speak English. Like, oh, you're foreigner. Do you speak English? Yeah. We, you might want to speak English. Yeah. Like I would address people in English first before Russian fire in West Ukraine. The rest of them, I would always use Russian and the rest of the republics. What what else do you think in terms of, so it was, what, about 70 years, yeah, that they were all part of one country. You said, so the modernization, you see the buildings, the apartments, the electrical outlets, buses, things like that, all kind of one almost commonality. Um, is there... Are there other things that are that were similar that you can kind of see that became part of the Soviet Union? And the question I've always wondered is how did all of these very seemingly different cultures get kind of brought into one country, right, under one particular flag when other countries that were neighboring did not? 
right? So you might have had other kind of uh, Central Asian countries that didn't actually become part of the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Afghanistan, for instance. Yeah, uh, dude, how would we run this? Do you mind if I get some more wine? Can we do that to do a pause? Or uh... All right, and we're back after a short little break. Um, yeah, so how did, how did certain countries become part of the Soviet Union and not others? And um, again, you, you mentioned some infrastructural kind of changes that took part in the cultures because they, were, they had this modernization. Um, is there any other effect from being part of it besides linguistically and, and kind of, as you said, the infrastructure a little bit? So th those are really, I would say, like two different questions, you know, so we kind of explore. The yeah. So one is the why were they all together? And the other is like, what is the lasting legacy of be having been together? Right. And uh, yeah. on, on the first one, it's like, you know, I don't know all the history. It's quite interesting. Uh, but I mean, on the, you know, I try to take a step back, you know, the historians could drill down more into detail, but one of the big, um, you know, one of the big facts of Russia is anyone who's been to Russia, lived here knows uh, is Russia is the largest country on the planet, right? It's the largest uh, state uh, anywhere in the world uh, by a huge margin. Actually, it's not even that close. Canada is number two, but Russia's is a lot bigger. And uh, it's a question of like, why is Russia so big? Right. Uh, and I would, again, I'd go back to, uh, Russia was on the periphery of Europe, so it wasn't really part of Europe, but it was kind of European, and it was the first first country or like group of people, I guess they're not really country at that time, uh, to want to Europeanize, and specifically because of the benefits of Europe, which was, uh, and to a large extent, was like military power, right, and ability to conquer territory, and etc. As we know, like the Europeans were probably the best world conquerors, not the probably they were the best world conquerors in all of human history right so uh like uh the russians took over all of the areas of northern eurasia that were not where there was no resistance right there was no established civilization so that from moscow kind of the and you know moscow and then to the west so moscow is almost as far east as historic russia was uh and they went all the way to the pacific ocean right like we're talking what is that like 4,000 miles or something? Uh, mm -hmm. It's like a nine hour flight from here to Vladivostok, uh, from Moscow to Vladivostok. And they conquered that on foot, you know, by river and on foot. And uh, they took all that area, but, but those areas were sparsely populated, right? There were not a lot of population. So there, you, but Russia was classically an empire in the sense that it was a multi-ethnic state where there were non-Russian peoples uh, and the tradition of Russia to like kind of incorporate non-Russian peoples goes back. The first ones were the Tatars. So the first non-Russian, uh, non-Russian like states where they have their own territory and own people and that kind of thing so that Russia incorporated were the Tatars. So it's now Tatarstan, uh, which was under Ivan the Great, Ivan the Terrible. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, you should translate it as Ivan the Fearsome. Rus you know, it's like a long-standing thing where in Russian it's Ivan Grozny and Grozny translates more as like fearsome it's not really terrible it's like ivan the fearsome <laughs> how you, how you translate. Yeah. much nicer so, yeah yeah so the way you should, terrible in the sense of like he's like awe inspiring you know so um right yeah ivan the fearsome is like the better name for him and ivan the fearsome like took over um Tatarstan, subjugated the tatars took them into the empire and uh 
ever since then, you know, Russia, Russia's always had the problem of like, there's no natural boundaries for most of Russia. Then it's like huge step area, like I said. And so they started like incorporating other peoples and they were, you know, this is one of the ways that I think um, Russia is actually very similar to the United States because it was a peripheral Western state. It wasn't Central European history, but it was on the periphery and it was a land empire that just kept taking territory, right? So Russia and the U.S. are the two states like that. that were peripheral European powers that just took over a lot of land territory. Uh, they weren't sea empires, they were land empires. And, um, you know, uh, they just kept taking territory. You know, there are interesting questions of like, uh, some of the territories, uh, you know, you mentioned the core Slavic lands were, uh, you know, associated, they're part of Russia. Or, I don't know the rights like terminology used, but they were very closely aligned and culturally connected uh, areas for a long time. Like we're talking, so, you know, the Rus, the original Russians, like trace their origins, like the ninth, eighth, ninth centuries. Uh, mm-hmm. And like the Ukraine, Ukraine, what's now Ukraine was part of that story, right? So Ukraine to the Russian imagination has always been a core territory of Russia, right? Uh, Uzbekistan is not, right? Uzbekistan was not part of Russia until right. the 19th century. And the Caucasus too, like uh, Georgian stuff was not part of the Russian empire historically. Like that was in the 19th century. They, they, were, they fought some wars in the Caucasus. They famously, you know, so the Northern Caucasus, the Russian part, there's an Eastern part, which is like the Chechens and the, what's Dagestan. There's no Dagestani people. There's a variety of peoples, but there's that area. And then Western uh, Caucasus, which was used to be the Circassians. I think I mentioned who were, uh, there are several regions now that still have some remnants of those people. Uh, Adige and the um, Capardino Balkaria and um, the other one, uh, the name slips me but um anyways a complicated story like Cabernet Balkaria they have the Cabardines who are Circassian and the Balkars who are Turkic people but uh, there was a there was a whole uh Circassian empire in that northern Caucasus uh their capital was Sochi a lot of people don't know that so the capital of the Circassians who are Muslim Caucasian people in the 19th century was Sochi that was their capital mm-hmm. and the rush the Russians came in and just uh either killed okay. or dr- drove them all out no and they like what the Circassians consider as a genocide, as in there's no Circassians left, basically. Like they not only took it, they got rid of all <laughs> of them. Like they cleansed it ethnically. Most of them were expelled. They fled to uh, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire. A lot, of, some of them settled in Iraq and other places in Israel. Even. Uh, so they were like expelled out. But the they took the Russians took over their capital. So uh, there was like an imperial expansionist kind of thing going on. Uh, but there, you know, for Russia, it really started like. Four or five hundred years ago, and it was a, almost like a manifest destiny thing, where they just kept going, you know, uh, like the United States. So uh, there were no natural boundaries, so they just like kept taking. It. So you know, that's not a great. I guess you know, you would hope there was a story where it's like, oh, these people liked each other, so they decided to join together in some kind of union. That's not really the story. Is really one of military yeah. conquest, where the Russians were, you know, one of the great military powers of Eurasia and kept taking territory. And uh, from the Russian point of view, of course, that's because there's no natural boundary. There's no defensible boundary, right? Like he, the Russians suffered like greatly from the other, their neighboring uh, powers historically. So like uh, the, a lot of these Turkic tribes, for instance, raided the uh, uh, Russians. And you probably know this, but you know, the word slave comes from Slav. So uh, mm. the, the Russians, Russians were 
not Russians, but like the, you know, uh, old Slavs from the, the Dnieper area. So like what's now Ukraine, maybe, um, were a huge source of slaves for the Ottoman, uh, Byz Byzant you know, Byzantine empire, I should say, uh, this is pre Turkic. Uh, so the Greek Byzantine empire, uh, you know, the remnants of the Roman empire, they, one of the key sources of slaves were the Slavs, the Slavic tribes. That's where we get the word slave in, in the English language. Right. So, um, uh, mm. yeah. Interesting. So yeah, so it was all about conquest and just being uh, kind of militarily dominant and no real natural border, no river, yes. no mountain well, range, the, no nothing like that. Yeah, they they had this. I don't know if it's a problem, but they were in the same position as the American colonists. The Russians basically historically were in that yeah. they had vastly superior. They copied Europe. They had vastly superior uh, technology and military hardware and manpower and all that kind of stuff, like organizational logistics, uh, we'll call it, you know. And uh, they did not have a – there was no natural – like, you know, uh, China or something, it's like you might reach the front – you reach the Himalayas and you're like, that's far enough. Like, let's not go to the other side. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like we're, that's, we're, we're more powerful, but we don't – like that huge fucking wall mountain seems like where we should stop probably. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. a natural boundary. This is probably a good idea here. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, that's good enough. Let's check the box and let's live out our lives and not co conquer any more peoples. But the Russians didn't have them. And they sent out explorers and in the, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries in particular in Siberia, there was no resistance. They just like, you know, it's like, in, it's like uh, Lewis and Clark, dude, who were Lewis and Clark? Do we celebrate them in American history? Right. They were military conquerors, essentially. They're explorers, yeah. but like they're going out to like survey the land that has been inhabited for 20,000 years by native peoples, but to take it for the European expansionist power and to survey it, whatever. You know what I mean? Anyways, the Russians were doing that same thing. I don't, I don't blame anyone. It's just kind of like that's the reality. And uh, to the Russians' point of view at that time, the point of view of the state, it was like a very natural thing. And it was hard to it would be, you know, it's like at the time that like I would have done the same thing too. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't have no blame here. It's just, that's kind of the natural thing you do is uh, you have superior, uh, you can take the territory. You, you're worried about being able to defend like your people and your land. You can take the neighboring territory. So it's a natural strategic move, right? Like that's what you do. It's like, it's very obvious. So that's what you should do. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, well, what about then the last um, 30 years? Like, so you, you talked a, a minute ago about some of the countries in Central Asia have stopped learning Russian, so they're kind of reverting back to monolingualism. Um, have, have there been drastically different strategies? I know that there's conflicts and kind of tension with some of the former Soviet republics. Um, but how have a lot of these countries kind of handled that 30 years? Did you notice it when you were there? Uh, and are there any, like, in the places where you're talking about, like Kyrgyzstan, where they only speak one language, do you think in some way that they, um, that they miss the kind of uh, union that they had before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they even, yes, uh, I've literally talked to a guy in Kyrgyzstan about that. They consider it cosmopolitanism. So there, a lot of the, Kyrgyz in the capital in Bishkek, um, they miss the Soviet days, uh, like for a variety of reasons, but yeah, cause they like 
dude, if you go to a bar in, um, we went, Mitch and I went to a bar in Tajikistan, um, in Hujant, we're just walking around and we found there, a lot of these countries, uh, areas like, um, Kyrgyzstan too, Kazakhstan a little less so, but they're, Uzbekistan too, okay, they're all Muslim and they're not, they don't have a state ban on alcohol, but alcohol is not popular, I'll put it that way, as in there's not a lot of demand, so a lot of restaurants don't serve alcohol either because maybe the owner is just like, yeah, I don't really agree with alcohol, but it's also like they only get a customer who would want a beer like once a week, so they don't lose money from that really, you know what I mean? It's just like not super common, but there are Mm -hmm. some people who want to drink, so they kind of there's like a, your local watering hole because like that's where you go. And so we were in this small town in Tajikistan and uh, in a historic Fergana Valley, which is really interesting historically. Alexander the Great was there. This town where in Hujan was actually called uh, um, Alexandria on Oxus, I think. It was the furthest uh, east of all the cities that Alexander the Great founded. So he, you know, he famously named like 20 cities Alexandria, including in Egypt, Alexandria. But, uh, the furthest east of all the Alexandrias was this town in Tajikistan. So uh, anyways, we were there and, uh, we, you know, we just found like we were walking on the outskirts of town because uh, they have one of the largest uh, Lenin statues, I think, there in the world. And so we found mm-hmm. the statue and uh, uh, and then we were just walking around, like not in the center of the city. I'm talking like kind of on the outskirts. And we see these guys like kind of chilling and drinking beer. We're like, Oh wow. We hadn't seen a lot of beer. There are a few restaurants in the center that sell it, but then uh, you know, in the rest of the town, you don't really see it, but there was this like, kind of, I'm talking like foreigners don't go to this bar. You know what I mean? It's like a local bar, uh, like a beer mm-hmm. is like less than a dollar. And, uh, but there's beer. And so we go in there and it's all these older uh, Tajik dudes. And uh, we're not talking to one. And it's because these older Tajik guys, like if, you know, 45, 50 and above, a lot of them, because uh, Soviet Union had like um, kind of uh, affirmative action programs where they would try to bring in people from like the republics, Tajikistan, to say study in Moscow, right? And give them an engineering degree and then you send them back to Tajikistan. So a lot of these guys had like been kind of urbanized or exposed to kind of the uh, Russian lifestyle. Mm-hmm when they were in college and stuff, they had like studied, uh, in, in Russia and, uh, or had lived in Russia for a while, you know, not as like now a lot of people come as guest workers, but they're kind of, they're not integrated in society at all. Right. Back then, dude, the people from the republics, I mean, I'm not saying it was like perfect. Like there was racism and other issues and all that, but there was real like political force behind the idea that we need to like, uh, give these people from republics like an education because we need to modernize the republics. We need to, local like workforce is educated and like can build like dams and power lines and power plants and like uh you yeah know, all the stuff bridges etc so uh the Soviet Union really spent a lot of effort in educating the populace and so as a result you have this like older what's now older you know used to be older but older group of people who are kind of like russianized whereas the younger people tend to be more uh like islamic they didn't, they're not gonna be drinking beer and stuff but some of the older guys are like oh yeah i'll have some beers i remember when i was in moscow etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh so there's this like weird you know weird thing but uh like kind of a longing for the the past of the way that it used to be where they had more cosmopolitan some yeah. chance yeah yeah so there's this weird phenomenon uh uh you can look it up but uh i forget the guy the russian guy who coined the term called the modern non-russian but like lithuanian or something uh homo sovieticus of like there's the soviet person 
who um, just like it, you know, it's different from what we have in the U.S. In the U.S., you know, you might have an Italian background, but you get assimilated into this like generic American culture, right? That doesn't have a long-seated uh, uh, historic um, national identity. You know, if you see what I'm saying. So like, mm-hmm. et- yeah. there's no ethnic identity to the United States, right? So Russians have an ethnic identity. There's a, like you or I will never be Russian and uh, our kids will not be Russian really, right? They could be half Russian, but uh, Russian is an ethnic identity. It's like your blood, you're Russian by blood, right? Like you're born Russian because like you're born black. It's like, you're just black. Like you can't change it. You know what I mean? It's not malleable. And, but in the Soviet Union, there was a little bit of this idea of like the Soviet person who, you know, people could marry across ethnic lines and like move around and stuff in a way that uh, since 1991, you can't do. So it wasn't as far, like, not as far, but it was different than like the American kind of national thing where we don't have a real, you know, uh, we don't have a nation state in the way like the Europeans do. Like there's a German people, there's a British people. We, there's no American people in that sense, in an ethnic sense, right? Uh, there's a little <laughs> bit of that. I mean, there are people who think there is. There's like a white, you know, American movement. But the majority yeah. of Americans don't really uh, subscribe to those ideas. And like in common usage in the U.S., you can be American. Like if you met a dude who American looks, doesn't associate with an yeah. If you met a dude who looks Asian, and he and you were like, "Oh, where are you from?" and he was like American, you wouldn't be like, "No, you're not." Like if he had a perfect American <laughs> accent, you know what I mean? <laughs> You know what I mean? No, like, you I can't be American. You don't uh, look American. It's like I was watching Space Force, the new the new TV show, yeah. and there's a guy. Uh, he's he's an Asian American actor on there, and then there's like a, uh, I guess one one of the characters is obviously trying to play like a stupid military racist guy. He's like, so where are you from? And he's like Sacramento, and the guy's yeah. like, no, no, I mean, but like originally. Yeah. And he's like, like Sacramento. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just so blatantly like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So, but if you're uh, like, if you're black, you're not Russian, right? Like, and uh, you're just not because sure. Russian is an ethnic, like the same way you're not German. You can't be German if you're black, right? It's German is an ethnic identity. Uh, so in America, I mean, you know, there's probably some flexibility in these ideas and stuff, but, um, in America, it's very flexible, right? Uh, Russian, the concepts of Ruski, you know, famously, there's, in Russian, there's two adjectives for Russian, right? It's Ruski and Rusiski. So Rusiski is like, uh, you know, you can be Georgian, but you're like a, you know, citizen of Russia or whatever. And, uh, mm-hmm. but you're not Russian ethnically, you know what I mean? So, uh, but in the Soviet Union, there was, some kind of uh it was more flexible like um there was some kind of blending i mean there were still nationalities and everything and if you know officially you had a nationality in your passport no it's a famous thing where like if you're jewish you had to say you're jewish in your passport but um you know there's still more there's like substantial flexibility i think uh in the way people related to each other like uh like tajiks were going to university with russians and like going the same like first year mechanical engineering course and stuff, you know, and you don't really see that anymore. So, uh, yeah, I think there was a loss of this cosmopolitan, uh, like, you know, era that uh, some people definitely 
like regret that it's gone now. Uh, I think, you know, in Russia, and that was part of the reasons like, you know, in the early nineties and um, as the Soviet collapse was going on, a lot of Russians were becoming more nationalistic and they were kind of like, why are we, why do we care about these people? You know what I mean? Like, uh, mm -hmm. it might sound like a familiar idea, like from, from the United States now. It's like, <laughs> why is it, why is it our responsibility to like uh, educate or like build infrastructure or pay for these people? Like it's not, they're not our people. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, yeah. So, like, why are we doing this? And, uh, so you definitely had some of that amongst Russians, I'd say not everyone, obviously, but there was a, it's more of that in the 1990s, but, uh, yeah, in the Soviet Union, it was much more cosmopolitan and, uh, people moved around and like, uh, Russians moved famously, right. You get a lot of Russians that moved to this, to central Asia. So a lot of those Russians have now moved back in the last 30 years, but, uh, mm -hmm. you've had large Russian populations that moved to the, so to the central Asia, not cause they were like, uh, you know, it was their dream from childhood, but because like the Soviet government was like, Hey, we're going to send uh, okay. We're going to open a power plant. Well, let's send uh, 30 new graduates to staff it. You know, 20 of them are going to be Russian and uh, we're sending them all to, uh, you know, to Hujand in Tajikistan. And uh, there's a hydroelectric power plant there or whatever. And like, we need qualified engineers to man it. And like, so there are a lot of these, a lot of the uh, government and technical personnel in these cities were there. It was mixed. There's still locals, but it was like heavily Russian. Right. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. in the, in the countryside and stuff, it was mostly local ethnic populations. So, uh, yeah. Interesting. Mm. Well, I'll just ask you one last question and then we'll wrap yeah. things up. We're at like, uh, the one hour, 15, one hour, 20 mark. Um, what's your, what's your next kind of diving into the geography, the culture, do you have anything planned? I know that when you finished the 15 countries, you talked about doing uh, something within Russia, was it, uh, or something like that, each of the, the current parts of Russia or something. How are you going to dive into this culture and place even further? Or, yeah. or are you? So, yeah, it's a great question, especially with the coronavirus, because we'll probably be traveling more in Russia than outside of Russia. And, uh, uh, yeah, I was toying for a while with the idea. So Russia has, I think, 86 federal subjects. Yeah, that's right. Called. Yeah. Uh, it depends, though, because uh, <laughs> do you count Crimea and Sevastopol, right? That includes those. Uh, so from the Russian perspective, yeah, there's 86. If From the U.S. perspective, there's 84. But, um, you know, anyways, um, uh, let's say there's 86. And uh, – for a while I was thinking, let's go to, um, I want to go to all the republics because Russia has these, you know, in the U S we have the States and then we also have like Puerto Rico's like some kind of protectorate. And then we have these weird mm -hmm. islands in the Pacific and they have some weird status, but in general, all the States are all the same kind of territory, right? Uh, like right. they all have the same rights and stuff. Uh, they're all equal, uh, within the federal framework, but in Russia, there are different types of territories, right? So, uh, there's multiple different types. And, um, one of them are the ethnic republics. So they're the non, they're recognized as non-Russian historic, historically non-Russian republics where the major, you know, or at least the large chunk of the population. It's not Russian nowadays. A lot, a lot of them, the majority of the population is Russian, but that's, you know, because of the last 50 years or more, but historically they were not Russian areas. And um, so for a while I thought about going to all of those. I think there's like 18 or something. I forget. I don't remember, mm -hmm. but uh, I haven't, I, I've been to like four or five maybe. It's a lot to do. And then the other one, um, 
so that's an obvious one I thought to do. I could try to do all 86 territories, uh, federal subjects, but that's like, I mean, that's a multi-year project because some of those are hard to get to. Like they're not in really, yeah. it's like, we're talking like way out by Alaska on the cross the Barents Sea or whatever, you know, like Chukotka and stuff. It's not easy to get to those areas. But uh, the one I do want to do, and I think I mentioned to you is, um, I want to do relatively soon, is go north in Russia because there's this historic trading route from Moscow to Ar- Arkhangelsk, which was the, the main port for Russia before the founding of St. Petersburg. So like when the Russians were sending, were famously were like fur traders and stuff, sending furs to Europe, uh, Arkhangelsk was the main port. Uh, in fact, if you go near the Kremlin, there's this, you know, the first, I think the first embassy um, in Moscow, we should, we should check on this, but I think the first big embassy uh, in Moscow was the British embassy, the old English, it's where Park Zaryadie is yeah, 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 yeah. It was actually an outpost of whatever the English trading company or something. So uh, it wasn't really a state embassy, but it was the British like fur trading outpost because they were importing furs and stuff from Russia like 400 years ago, 500 years ago. And uh, that was through Arkhangels. So there's this northern trading route. That's how we, you know, it freezes over in the winter, but in the summer it's thaws and you can get ships in and out. And uh, so anyways, there, there were these, there's a series, a string of cities going north from Moscow up to Arkhangelsk, many of which are five, 600 years old and like have like old churches and stuff. They're not that well known because most people just go to like the Golden Ring and these other areas near Moscow. But there are some like really interesting historic cities uh, if you go further north uh, in Vologda, for instance. They have some of the, and they have some of the best preserved um, icons from like, um, Dionysus is like the famous, the uh, most famous Russian icon painter, you know, painting icons mm-hmm. in history. And the best preserved examples of his work are in Northern Russia because the climate preserves the paints, right? It doesn't get hot. Mm. So for hundreds of years, these monasteries have stayed relatively cold and they have like the original icons that he painted in frescoes and stuff. And um, you can see like some pretty amazing works. So uh, yeah, that's, that's what's on my agenda this summer. All right. Excellent. Well, maybe I'll tag along with you on uh, some of the, these adventures. Yeah? You're more than welcome. More than welcome. Uh, well, thanks for the time this evening, Bob, uh, and all the information. It was uh, a lot to take in. Very interesting. Uh, I love exploring your habit, your your hobbies with related to these. I mean, I don't know anyone who, even Russian, who's traveled uh, these places as much as you have, and especially who knows the history and the culture related to it. So, thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure, Bill. Uh, always good talking to you. And uh, take care, man. Uh, happy journeys, happy trails ahead. As the Russians say, yes, happy trails. Just leave it. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, thank you, everyone else, for listening. And uh, don't forget, as I said at the beginning, subscribe, rate, and review. And until next time, I am the Texan Abroad.